to the Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories from French history. I'm your host, Diana. And before we get started with this week's episode, I want to thank all of you who have reached out with emails and comments in the last few weeks. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. This week, I want to ask all of you out there listening to do me a favor. If you're enjoying the show, could you please help me spread the word? Like The Land of Desire on Facebook and post about it to your newsfeed. Tweet about the show. Rate and review the show on iTunes. Mention it on Reddit. The only way that people find out about The Land of Desire is through word of mouth. So if you enjoy the program, please help me spread the word. Thanks so much. And now back to the show. This week, we'll continue our series on the Belle Epoque, focusing on the massive waves of immigration pouring into Paris, especially from the rest of the French countryside. This was an era in which ideas about true Parisian identity were being formed at precisely the same time in which Paris was being invaded by outsiders, depending on who you asked. What was the result of this? It was a cosmopolitan city a multicultural hodgepodge in which immigrants could become titans and the snobbiest, aristocratic French nationalists could spend their nights out eating a bunch of grub, trucked in from the middle of nowhere and cooked up the way they do in the old country. Right as France teetered on the brink of cultural warfare, as voices rose up to reject all that was new and foreign and different and scary, the most unlikeliest of dishes found its way to the spotlight, escargot. I love escargot for being weird little contradictions. They're absolutely revolting to think about, but they're delicious to eat. They're considered fancy, snobby food when they're really the lowest life form on the menu. And finally, escargot is right up there with frog's legs and brie when it comes to iconic French food. But the only reason the French eat escargot today is because some desperate refugees from the German border hitched their way into Paris with a snail and a dream. So please enjoy this week's episode, A Long Way to Escargot. Like everything else, Eating snails was invented by the Romans. Back then, Romans cooked snails the same way they cook most things today. A little oil, a little vinegar, a little thyme on the grill. They were pretty popular. And one ancient Roman farmer even had a ferry service, sailing up and down the Italian coast to deliver big fat snails to hungry rich people. He wasn't the only one spreading the good word. Julius Caesar probably introduced the French to their first proper eaten snails when he was trying to conquer the Gauls. The snails were a big hit in ancient France. Too big. Everybody was eating them. And if there's one food rich people hate eating, it's a food that poor people are eating. Snails may have begun as a food for Roman elites, but by the Middle Ages, snails were a food for the grubby lower classes. The lower classes love snails, and who could blame them? If your other options were 
bread or more carrots, you'd take any protein that's offered to you, thank you very much. Meat you can grow yourself, basically for free? Yes, please. But remember, snails are only cool if rich people are eating them. Poor people kept right on eating them because, you know, cheap dinner. But it was no longer the snack of the rich. And by the 1600s, all of a sudden the idea of eating snails is gross and seriously uncool. Cookbooks, which were tacky enough to include recipes for snails, basically apologized for including the equivalent of a mail-order cheese log in its pages. Ugh, the cookbooks seemed to say, if you must. Fancy Paris turned up its nose at the humble snail. By the end of the 1600s, one French courtier wrote of his astonishment that anyone had created this depraved dish in order to satisfy the extravagance of gluttony. Sorry, little guys. Your day will come again. So, for about 300 years, snails were definitely out of fashion in France. But you know what? Mail-order cheese logs are always out of fashion. But Hickory Farm still sells a million billion of them every year. So maybe you couldn't eat snails at court, but if you trekked out to the countryside, French farmers were still eating them regularly. Folks out in the boonies figured out that if you cover anything in garlic butter, it's going to taste good. And at some point in history, some undiscovered genius cooked his snails in garlic, butter, parsley, white wine, and cognac, and then served the snails inside their own shells. Seasons changed, kings were born and died, centuries passed one to the next, the world forgot about snails, but out there in the countryside, the farmers were keeping the dream of snail dinners alive. For those hundreds of years, the only people in Paris who already knew about these little garlic butter bombs were the wine salesmen. The wine salesmen would travel out to Burgundy every few years to check out their grapes. While they were talking shop, the salesmen would be served the same dish of escargot, only these snails had been picked off the grapevines just days ago. Back in Paris, I'm assuming those wine sellers sat around grumpy, unable to satisfy their craving for snails without looking like a lunatic. Luckily for this small group of snail lovers, it was about to get a whole lot easier to send snails across the country. Because by the middle of the 18th century, Paris welcomed a technological wonder, the train. For about 20 years, France had experimented with the train, building short rail lines here and there, but it wasn't until the 1840s and 50s that the iconic train stations of Paris finally opened. Six railway stations circling the city limits brought the world to Paris's doorstep with incredible speed. In addition to the exotic goods arriving from every corner of the globe, the trains also brought to Paris all the treasures of France, including those big, fat, juicy snails which had always been the pride of the countryside. Trains moved so fast, the snails could be packed inside little crates stuffed with cabbage leaves and they'd arrive fattened up in Paris just a few days later. Now the trick was to find someone in Paris who knew the right way to prepare these new additions to the marketplace. But as it turned out, the snails didn't just bring in foods and art and treasure from around the world. They also brought people. 
On the border between France and Germany lives a hotly contested little strip of land named Alsace-Lorraine. If that name rings a bell, it's because France and Germany have used that little strip of land as an excuse to go to war a hundred or two hundred times. Since Alsace-Lorraine changed countries every 100 years or so, the locals adopted a curious mixture of both cultures, eating German-sounding dishes like sauerkraut alongside foie gras. They speak a local dialect, which sounds just as Franco-Germanic as you'd expect. Yet the Alsatians had participated enthusiastically in the French Revolution, mostly inspired by the revolution's ideas about freedom, especially freedom of religion. Because Alsace had one of the largest and oldest Jewish populations in Europe. During the first half of the 1800s, Alsace found itself constantly hosting various parts of the French army. After all, Alsace was the first line of defense against the Germans. But having an extra million soldiers in your neck of the woods was not exactly a picnic for the locals. As the military population grew and grew, jobs for unskilled, uneducated young men who weren't soldiers shrank and shrank, until finally it made more sense to leave home altogether in search of better money somewhere else. It was time to get out of Dodge. And here's where Alsace-Lorraine being part of France came in handy. Paris was now just a short train ride away. Better yet, Paris was getting fun. As we've discussed in previous episodes, after the wars and remodeling of the middle of the 19th century, Paris had transformed into a pleasure palace. New shops and restaurants were popping up out of the rubble just in time to serve a new middle class of Parisians who had money burning holes in their pockets. The new railway line taking Alsatians directly into Paris had opened in 1852, and you could make the journey in an afternoon. If you were a 20-something growing up in a miserable, overcrowded, and underemployed village, wouldn't you hop the train to Gay Paris? Better yet, what if you had a trick up your sleeve, a trick Parisians couldn't resist, a trick that you were convinced would make your fortune? What if you had a trick called beer? The first professional Alsatian brewery opened in the 1200s, and by the turn of the 19th century, there were over 250 breweries in Strasbourg alone. Those miserable 20-somethings hitching a ride to Paris picked a great time to introduce their talents. Paris was young, flush with cash, and ready to drink. In 1864, one of these Alsatian refugees, Frederick Beaufanger, stepped off the train. Beaufanger made his way to the Place de la Bastille. Last time we checked in with the Bastille, it was a steaming pile of rubble, soon to be replaced by a guillotine. Well, that was the Paris of the past. This was the new Paris. In the new Paris, the Bastille neighborhood had just gained a new train station, and this train would ferry Parisians out of the city and into the suburbs. This was a big deal, because back then, all these weird French taxes meant it was way cheaper to drink in the suburbs. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that the train station became a pretty popular place on Saturday nights. Frédéric Beaufanger saw his opportunity. All around him were homesick Alsatian refugees and working-class party people, 
all in need of a drink. Beaufanger opened up a little one-room shack, and inside he offered something new and exciting, fresh beer on draft. To accompany this beer, Beaufanger offered, what else, Alsatian food, sauerkraut, or as they call it in France, choucroute, sausages, oysters, onion soup, and you guessed it, escargot. Alsatians had been cooking escargot out in the countryside for centuries, but their recipe is not the familiar one we know today. In fact, the famous garlic, butter, parsley, and wine recipe that we know was developed in the region of Burgundy. However, in the new Paris, full of newcomers pouring in from every corner of the country, Beaufanger would have had the opportunity at some point to run into a Burgundian and taste what they'd been doing over in their side of the country. He knew a hit when he tasted one, so onto the menu they went. Beaufanger had created a whole new kind of dining experience, the brasserie, or brewery. Brasseries are in some ways very similar to the classic American diner. They're casual, fun, affordable, and this is really exciting, always open. Parisians were bored of their traditional restaurants and cafes, and the new working class went nuts for this new type of destination. Beaufanger's luck was about to get even better, because the same year he opened his brasserie, a nasty insect invaded the vineyards of France. Suddenly, over 40% of the grapes in France were ruined, and for the next decade, wine was extraordinarily expensive. Now that wine was out of the picture, it was beer's time to shine. And for the first time in its history, Paris was beer crazy. In 1830, the French brewed 135,000 gallons of beer. But by 1880, a mere 50 years later, that amount had doubled to 373,000 gallons. As if the wine crisis wasn't enough, Beaufanger was about to capitalize on another French disaster. In 1870, France lost its war against the Prussians. Remember our earlier episodes about the siege of 1870 and how France was forced to pay ridiculous amounts of gold to the Prussians as a punishment and let the Prussians march through Paris? Well, there was one more term of France's surrender that I haven't mentioned in this podcast yet. Once again, Alsace-Lorraine changed sides and France handed the territory back to Germany. Forced to declare their allegiance to either France or Germany, massive numbers of Alsatians hopped on the train to Paris. Alsatian refugees were no longer bored young men in search of better jobs. They were entire families seizing the opportunity to stay French, especially Jewish families desperate to maintain their religious freedom. By 1872, 48% of Jewish men and 36% of Jewish women in Paris were from Alsace-Lorraine. Many of them arrived at the Bastille station when they first got to Paris. And do you know what was the first sight they saw? Parisians lining up around the block willing and waiting to hand money over to an Alsatian just like them in exchange for exactly the kind of food they ate back home. For some of these refugees, the brasseries were a place for them to spend the new paychecks they were now able to earn in the big city. 
For other refugees, the brasseries were the place where they intended to earn those paychecks, and they opened up brasseries of their own all over the city. As Paris tried to recover from the devastating blow to its wine industry, an exciting new law opened up a world of possibilities for drinkers all around town. Before, anyone wishing to sell alcohol needed to open up a specialized shop and apply for a specific permit from the authorities. Now, though, all anyone needed to do to sell alcohol was post up a little written declaration, basically a little post-it in the window that says, My shop sells beer. Signed, Pierre. What a time to be alive! Brasseries became an institution of daily life in Paris, and with them, the Alsatian foods they served became a staple element of French cuisine. By the end of the 19th century, Parisians couldn't get enough escargot. If you weren't making money running your own brasserie, maybe you were raking it in as a snail shell collector, digging through the trash of fine restaurants to find the leftover shells with leftover garlic butter sauce inside to sell back to cheap restaurants. Back in the countryside, wrote Scientific American in 1875, Throngs of women and children scour the country, collecting the snails in immense numbers and depositing them in little tracts of land enclosed with simply a trail of sawdust. By that time, Parisians were consuming nearly 60 to 80 million snails each year, with some restaurants serving up 12,000 escargots per day. Escargot had moved beyond a passing fad or a fancy delicacy. It was truly a classic French dish, as much a part of a Frenchman's diet as a baguette or a roasted chicken. At a time in which foreign people, foods, ideas, inventions were being introduced in overwhelming numbers, escargot were the perfect assimilators. Once unfamiliar and exotic and a little scary, the humble escargot arrived to Paris by train and instantly wove itself into the thread of daily life. Unfortunately, the Alsatians themselves were not so lucky. The Belle Epoque had so far been an age of unstoppable innovation, radical ideas, and a full speed ahead charge towards modernity. Paris was now a sophisticated, cosmopolitan city whose medieval history had been erased from the ground up. The construction of modern Paris had attracted massive waves of immigrants who had stayed on afterwards to find work in the new factories of the Industrial Revolution, living in the new working-class apartments now filling up the edges of the city. But the old guard of Paris wasn't giving up without a fight. The same conservative, Catholic population which had fled Paris during the Commune now wanted back in. The Paris they found was unrecognizable. Soaring rents, scandalous nightclubs, abstract art, and worst of all, emptying churches. France was about to experience one of the greatest culture clashes it had ever known, and the consequences would shape not only the rest of the Belle Epoque, but the entire 20th century to follow. At the center of it all, would be the world's unluckiest Alsatian. Please join me in two weeks for my next episode, The Dreyfus Affair.
You're listening to The Land of Desire. My name's Diana, and this is a one-woman show. I write, research, and produce each episode. For every episode, I'll post extra content at www.thelandofdesire.com. This week, I'll be sharing some historical photographs, as well as some restaurant recommendations for anybody who wants to take a trip down memory lane next time they're in Paris and dreaming of escargot. While you're at the website, you can leave a comment or send me a message. Thanks to all of you who did so this week. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on iTunes. You can also subscribe to this show through Stitcher or the Google Play Store. Like the show on Facebook to get episode updates and news about the show. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll all join me again in two weeks for another episode. Until then, au revoir.